Listener supported. WNYC Studios. It's Politics with Amy Walter from The Takeaway. This is the second in a series of public hearings the committee will be holding as part of the House's impeachment inquiry. The problem of trying to overthrow a president based on this type of evidence is obvious. But that's what their whole case relies on. Beginning with second-hand and third-hand information cited by the whistleblower. I come before you as an American citizen who has devoted the majority of my life, 33 years, to service to the country that all of us love. And now the president in real time is attacking you. What effect do you think that has on other witnesses' willingness to come forward and expose wrongdoing? Well, uh, it's very intimidating. I want to let you know, Ambassador, that some of us here take witness intimidation very, very seriously. And these investigations, do they appear to you to be to benefit the president's personal and political interests rather than the national interest? Well, they certainly could. Did you ever talk to President Trump in 2019? No, I have not. Thank you, Ambassador. not exactly sure uh, what the ambassador is doing here today. Ambassador Yovanovitch, thank you for being here today. What is the interruption for this time? The president implicitly threatened you. Well, uh, it's very intimidating. Shocked, appalled, devastated that um, the president of the United States would talk about any ambassador uh, like that. But what if the president could put someone else in place that wasn't a career diplomat? Might that person be willing to work with Rudy Giuliani? Yeah, maybe. That's exactly what happened, wasn't it? Yes. This week marked a shift in the ongoing impeachment inquiry as the first round of televised testimony began on Wednesday. On Friday, we heard from Marie Ivanovich, the well-respected U.S. ambassador to Ukraine until May of this year. She was fired by President Trump because, as she sees it, she was impeding his and Rudy Giuliani's personal political agenda. Much of what we've heard during the televised testimony this week was known to those closely following the impeachment inquiry. But this was the first chance for the public to see and hear from longtime government civil servants involved in Ukrainian foreign policy. Joining me to discuss is Anita Kumar, White House correspondent at Politico, and Amanda Turkle, Washington bureau chief of HuffPost. Hello to both of you. Thanks for joining. Thank you. Thanks. Anita, why don't I start with you? Can you tell us, based on the uh, hearings this week, what do we know now? And what do you think this is going to mean for the next week or so of hearings? Well, I think we actually know a lot of what we knew before, Mm. but because it was out in the open and we could see people testifying, hear them for ourselves, I think um, it has a greater impact on those that are watching, right? You could before you could just hear things and learn things through leaks and through selective uh, testimony that was out. But this time you got to this this week, you got to see those people firsthand and you got you got to sort of decide for yourself whether you thought that person was trustworthy. So, you know, the allegations remain the same, which is the president asked Ukraine to um, investigate Joe Biden and his son, Hunter Biden. Um, the question is really how much pressure did he put on? Uh, do you think that's wrong? And 
And really the thing that Democrats are trying to get out now and will be trying to get at this coming week is, you know, how much pressure did he put on it? Did he say to to Ukraine, I'm not going to give you aid. I'm not going to give your country aid unless you do this for me. And that's still we're still kind of hearing about that. Yeah, that's what I want to get to, Amanda, with you is the sort of connecting the dots piece of this. There's still, as Republicans like to say, they still haven't found a smoking gun or a there there. No one can say that they personally talked to the president who told them to do a certain thing. These are still second and third hand accounts or people who overheard conversations. And we still don't have an answer as to why or how the funds were that ultimately flowed to Ukraine were held up. So how or will we ever get those answers, do you think? Well, I think Democrats are trying as hard as they can to get as close as they can, because the people who have direct knowledge are refusing to testify. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm primarily thinking of, well, obviously, Donald Trump isn't going to testify. But you have Mick Mulvaney, the acting White House chief of staff, who gave the order to um, hold up the aid to Ukraine. And he essentially acknowledged that it was a quid pro quo when he gave a White House press briefing and said, basically, get over it. This is what happens. And then he walked it back. Um, And now Mulvaney is saying he's not going to testify, as as far as we know. You have uh, John Bolton, who is obviously the top national security official, who is waiting for the courts to resolve whether he and his aide will testify and presumably Bolton knows more uh, than he has said publicly so far. Um, So what we are getting so far primarily um, has been career diplomats, civil servants, professionals who are nonpartisan, who are unbiased and presumably don't have any reason to spin things for partisan politics, giving what they know and what they saw. And they're being clear when they didn't talk to Trump directly Um, when they don't have direct knowledge. And so far, the evidence looks pretty bad for Trump. Earlier this week, we had Nancy Pelosi come uh, into a press conference and call the president's behavior in regards to Ukraine bribery. She used the term bribery and, and noted that in the Constitution, one of the um, things in which a president can be impeached for is actually bribery. What does this mean that she's now using that term? Is she basically saying when we write up articles of impeachment, we're going to use the term bribery instead of quid pro quo? Yes, I think she's getting there. And it's in part it's in part branding. I mean, <laughs> bribery is a lot easier for people to understand than quid pro quo. And that's part of what Democrats have been saying all along about this Ukraine scandal is that it's actually very, very easy for the public to understand and for them to understand why it's bad, as opposed to the Mueller report. I think if you ask most people to explain the Mueller report, you're going to get blank looks, including mm-hmm. by people who followed it closely. Anita, can you... Talk to us a little bit about the strategy that the White House is employing. Apparently, there is some sort of war room that they have to respond in real time to these hearings. But we also know that on Friday, the president tweeted out um, some disparaging remarks about Marie Ivanovich while she was testifying, which Democrats have taken now to say that this is a form of witness intimidation. It seemed to blindside Republicans on the House. Did this blindside the 
so-called war room in the White House as well? And should we expect more of this going forward that the president, as usual, is just going to tweet whatever on his mind, even if it hurts his case or makes it harder for Republicans to defend? Well, I've talked to a lot of people that are close to the White House, in the White House, um, who say, as you and I, as as we all know, that <laughs> this president is going to talk as much as he wants, he's going to tweet when he wants, and he's going to say what he wants. Now, people can advise him those things aren't good. Sometimes the message isn't good. But it's a president we've, we've no- come to know that he just says what he's thinking. And so I think we're going to continue to see that. Um, there are Republicans, as you mentioned, who did not think that his tweets on Friday were the way to go, that it, you know, the House Democrats quickly said it was witness intimidation. But there is an actually organized effort here, separately from what the president is doing personally. And that is, you know, they don't like to call it a war room, but sort of a rapid response team mm-hmm. that the White House has put together uh, of a lot of different types of people in legislative affairs and communications, legal that will be watching these hearings uh, during the second week, as they did the first week, and responding in real time. So sort of fact-checking and and putting their spin on it and um, sending out messages to their, you know, people, like-minded people, surrogates, supporters, that type of thing. They're going to continue to do that as the impeachment inquiry goes on, whether through the second week or even further when, when the next phase happens. And Amanda... Is the expectation that it's going to continue to go this way and that ultimately Democrats, by the end of this next week or another week after that, are going to put articles of impeachment together, put them to the floor, and it will pass simply on a party line vote? That, in other words, we shouldn't expect to see Republicans suddenly break from this president. I think that's right. This is very partisan. It's going to remain that way. It's... um you know, polling has shown that uh, more and more members of the public, a uh, higher percentage of the public is increasingly in favor of impeachment, but it remains partisan amongst the public, too. But, you know, these hearings aren't really meant to convince uh, lawmakers from either party to change their mind. It's obviously sort of about reaching out to voters. Um, you know, I think that if you get to the Senate, I mean, there's no way that Mitch McConnell will allow Trump to be impeached. But, you know, I do think that there are Republican senators who are a little more uncomfortable about what's going on. Uh, They don't necessarily want uh, impeachment to just sort of be dismissed quickly in the Senate. Uh, uh, But, you know, not all of them are as vocal as, say, Mitt Romney, who's been a little bit more outspoken than other Republican senators. But behind the scene, there's a lot more going on. Um, And senators aren't comfortable defending what Trump is doing. But, you know, this is going to be a campaign issue for both sides. There are vulnerable Republican senators who, you know, they don't want to be out there defending Trump. And there's a question of how much this is going to drag into the presidential season. You know, is the Senate going to do a lengthier uh, trial and have this uh, go through January so people like Elizabeth Warren and Cory Booker, the other presidential candidates, and Bernie Sanders can't get on the campaign trail. So it's definitely going to infect partisan politics more. Anita, let's look ahead to next week. The two big names that stand out to me who are on the official schedule are EU Ambassador Sondland um, and former NSC staffer Fiona Hill, both of them have made waves, at least in the testimony that has been released, the, the, the testimony they gave behind closed doors. 
is the expectation that this these could be the sort of hearings that are going to have the fireworks that maybe haven't shown up in the hearings we had this week? Well, I'd add one one more name to that, mm. and that's Alexander Vindman, who, right. if you remember, he's the National Security Council official who was on the call. So it'll be interesting to see what he says. But I'm not sure. I think we're going to see, you know, at this point, it's, a, it's you know, three days of, of hearings. We're going to see quite a lot of people morning and afternoon. These are long hearings. And I, you know, it's, I know that Americans are paying attention to some of the things, but I'm not sure that people can stop their lives and, and work and, and watch for 10 hours a day or eight hours a day. So <laughs> unclear if we're going to, if they're going to, you know, tune in and and in that right moment. So far, we haven't seen like a huge, huge moment. There has been some a little bit of new information um, the first week of testimony, but a lot of this stuff we had heard before. So I'm not sure if there's going to be a aha moment. I think what Democrats are trying to do is build a case that you know shows what happened with more people, people that Democrats feel like Americans and and senators and House members should trust because they uh, have known what's been going on. They're not partisan. And I think they're just trying to build that that case with more evidence. Anita Kumar, Amanda Turkle, thank you both so much for giving us the update on a very busy week. Sure. Okay, thanks. thanks for having me. So with all this talk of impeachment and how the televised testimony will play with those watching from home or from their smartphones, I thought it would be a good idea to talk to somebody who watches polls for a living. Kristen Soltis-Anderson is a pollster at Echelon Insights and a columnist at the Washington Examiner. I asked her if we could expect the televised testimony to move the needle. I don't expect these numbers to move a great deal unless there are witnesses who bring forward information that pretty dramatically changes what the public already thinks about this situation. On issue after issue, people have made up their minds about President Trump one way or the other. And so you see, despite a news cycle that constantly feels up and down and a bit crazy, poll numbers around this president tend to be pretty stable. So on something like impeachment, you did see pretty significant movement in numbers around impeachment shortly after Speaker Pelosi announced that the House would be uh, looking into an inquiry. But a lot of that movement was coming from Democrats, sort of coalescing around their their party leadership's changed view on the issue. Republicans did not budge that much, independents somewhat. But folks have now, those lines have really leveled off. They've, they've made up their minds. And there was some fresh polling that actually came out this week from Navigator Research, which is a Democratic polling coalition. And they studied this issue and and what could possibly change people's minds. They find that slightly more than half of Americans support impeachment. But among those who don't, there's about 23 percent of America who's never going to budge. And another portion that think, look, I may think that what the president did was wrong, but we're too close to an election. I don't think this is the right process. There's really just a very small, I believe it's about 12% slice of the public that says, I could change my mind on this with new information. Mm -hmm. So there is a chance that if any of these witnesses bring forward some kind of testimony that's really just a blockbuster, something that dramatically changes what we know about who did what and when, 
it's possible that that 12% could go from opposing impeachment to supporting it. But at the moment, they're sort of still sort of in that skeptic category where they just haven't heard enough. And what they've heard has not persuaded them that what the president did rises to the level of high crimes and misdemeanors. We know that the national numbers also mask what's going on in the states and especially some of these battleground states. And I don't know if you've seen any more recent polling, but we saw in polling that came out in the last couple of weeks that in some of these battleground states like Wisconsin or Pennsylvania, that support for impeachment is actually lower than what it is nationally. That's right. I think the things that are the biggest threat to Republicans and President Trump in some of those states are things like health care, uh, particularly if they're not running against Elizabeth Warren come next November. It's things like the economy, if it has begun to cool off, uh, if issues like trade are still unresolved, if tariffs are still hurting American farmers. There are many other issues that pose much graver threats to Republicans and Trump when you look at the Electoral College or when you look at things like the ability to control the House and the Senate, which that to me is the, the most interesting geography of all. It's not even necessarily you know, the, the presidential level battleground states, but it's these places where you have, say, a Cory Gardner in Colorado, mm-hmm. or you've got, you know, Democrats who are in some of these seats that Trump won. And they were able to pull off a victory in 2018 by not really overtly running against Trump so much as running against things like Republicans want to take away your pre-existing conditions. If they're on the record supporting impeachment, That may be something that the folks at the NRCC, the Republican Congressional Committee, who runs and supports these congressional races, is pretty happy about. So, Kristen, there is a very strong possibility that for the first time in history, an impeached president will be running for re-election. I'm not yet convinced that it will be a significant deal unless the numbers change significantly and no longer just line up with kind of what we're already seeing in things like ballot tests or job approval numbers. You know, if you've got about 40 some percent that oppose impeachment, you've got about 40 some percent that approve of the job Trump's doing in national ballot tests. He tends to come in just north of 40 percent. I mean, these numbers are pretty consistent no matter how you slice it. So it's possible that if the impeachment numbers, something does jar them loose and you wind up with only 30 percent of Americans opposing impeachment, that that does become, uh, you know, to the extent that it correlates with some of those other big numbers, that those numbers sag as well. But for the moment, they're all so closely bunched together that I I still think barring any big shift, I mean, the things where President Trump is the, the most vulnerable, I still firmly believe are health care if he's not running against Elizabeth Warren and Bernie mm-hmm. Sanders, um, and the economy if it slows down. And those are the two big things, I think much more so than impeachment, that are going to drive people's ultimate decision at the polls. You know better than anybody, Chris, that just voting for the inquiry itself in a campaign ad will be oh, yes. voted for impeachment. <laughs> so my sense from talking to a couple of those Democrats is they are going to make the case Yes, that we just we need an inquiry. We need to we need to make sure we're tracking down any uh, malfeasance on the part of any president. But they also are really leaning back on. I was sent to Washington to uphold, protect the Constitution, and that's what I'm doing. This isn't a personal vendetta against the president. This is about my uh, commitment to upholding my constitutional oath. We'll see if voters make that same distinction. 
it'll be interesting to see if they have a little more wiggle room on this, because if you voted to send, if you were, say, somebody who maybe loosely supported the president, but maybe has become disillusioned, you're one of these voters who sort of changed position, one of the, you know, fabled suburban woman voter, um, that you may, even if you somewhat, you don't love impeachment, you may be willing to give a little bit of latitude to a Democratic member who does vote for it. I think the worry is if Congress doesn't really do or accomplish anything else. So you went to Washington to try to change things, and instead the only thing Congress did really was impeach the president. Does that then sort of suggest, look, voters keep sending different parties to Washington because they keep wanting change, and every time the change shows up, nothing actually changes. Congress doesn't actually do things. Things still feel like gridlock. They still feel like division. If you are somebody who put your name on the line to impeach the president, are you just continuing more of that partisan division? Or can they spin it as we're just here to be good governance and hold people accountable? That'll be the debate they're going to be facing. Kristen Soltis-Anderson, thank you again for all your help in walking us through this. Of course. Thank you for having me, Amy. Hi, I'm Alexis Ohanian. You may know me as one of the co-founders of Reddit, but more recently, a large part of my identity is being a father to my wonderful daughters. In my podcast, Business Dad, I hope to open the conversation about working parents a bit. You'll get to hear from a wide range of business dads, from Rain Wilson and Guy Raz to Todd Carmichael and Shane Battier, to find out how they balance being a dad with a successful career. Business Dad is available now, so be sure to listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. During times like these, it's always a good idea to check in with a historian. So I called up Professor Barbara Perry, the Presidential Studies Director at the University of Virginia's Miller Center. I started off by asking her to talk to me about the differences in how Americans are responding to the prospect of an impeachment today and how that compares to the past. Given that we've had three of these now in my lifetime, and yes, I am getting older, but it doesn't <laughs> seem like I've been here that long, and we yeah. have had three in my lifetime. And that's in inquiries, impeachment inquiries. And then right. if you also think about the fact that we have heard conversations about impeachment even when we haven't gone to an impeachment inquiry. So you had people bringing up on the Democratic side possibilities of impeachment of George W. Bush, yeah. or you obviously had people believing that Barack Obama was an illegitimate president, and maybe people would even go as far as to think about impeachment. I think of, if we're talking about the emergency and crisis situation, used to be on the wall of a school or a hotel or a public building where you'd have those fire alarms and it would say, break glass in case of emergency. Mm -hmm. And you would break the glass only if you were going to pull the fire alarm. But that was to keep it protected so people wouldn't just lean up against it and have the fire alarm pulled. Or it would be harder to do. So what I see is this metaphor is that, particularly if we talk about the incumbent president who talked about breaking the China, or we say throwing the chessboard up in the air, but the glass is being broken, it seems, every day now mm -hmm. by someone on one side or the other. Mm -hmm. And I think you also hit the nail on the head to say it is this 
first of all, the polarization that we face today that, yes, we came through the polarized 60s, but we still had the Cold War consensus that held us together mm -hmm. somewhat in the period of Nixon. And so that finally, when things got so bad and the smoking gun was found on the tapes, that people in his own party said, OK, the line has been crossed. Mm -hmm. So that's one big difference. The other is 24-7 media, which we did mm -hmm. not have in those days. That's made a huge difference. Social media has made a huge difference. Mm -hmm. uh, the fact that we just know that this is the possibility now that can happen, relatively speaking, every few years means that it doesn't take on the gravity, as you say, that it did for Nixon when we hadn't had an impeachment inquiry for 100 years. Do you then believe, as some Republicans are saying right now, that, okay, well, guess what? It's just a matter of time. Democrats are going to have a president and... If we have a Republican House, get ready for another impeachment. I do worry about that. Mm -hmm. uh, as someone who studies presidential history and in other parts of my scholarly life study the Constitution and the Supreme Court and Congress, I do worry about that. Because if you go back to the founders and you look at what they said in their debates in Philadelphia about impeachment, uh, particularly uh, several who were most important, obviously Madison, because He's known as the father of the Constitution because he wrote a good part of it. The fact that Edmund Randolph in Richmond was a key player in the debates for ratification in Virginia before the ratification itself, and then George Mason as well. The three of them particularly, those Virginians, were arguing about what this impeachment clause should be. And they themselves said... First of all, we don't want a situation where this can just be used as a routine matter where the president is always at the beck and call of Congress because impeachment is hanging over his head. They didn't want it to be easy. They wanted it to be hard and unusual, and they didn't want it to be routine and normalized. They did worry about foreign influence, we should say. That was one of their main concerns, was foreign influence over the president. But they didn't want it to be used simply when Congress disagreed politically or ideologically with the person sitting in the White House. It does feel to me like we're at another t sort of tipping point beyond the question of the Constitution or are we in a constitutional crisis, but it seems like we're at a tipping point too in terms of the balance of power between the executive and the legislative, that as long as, as Congress is divided po politically and as long as the Senate still has a filibuster rule, there's very little that can make it through the legislative process and that governing for the foreseeable future is going to come through the executive branch. I'll speak first historically, mm -hmm. and that is to say that scholars, and I think uh, David Mayhew, a political scientist, uh, not that long ago, relatively speaking, maybe 10 or so years ago, did a tally of all of the major pieces of legislation that had been passed when there was divided party governance. So the good news is at least there has been precedent for that, but we've been discussing the increased polarization, mm -hmm. first of all, and that's going to make that harder. So even though we have a precedent for that and we shouldn't lose hope that someday perhaps we could go back to it, uh, I think that it's unlikely that in this polarized era, however long this lasts, that we will go back to that. And then I think you have to think in these terms. If you have Republicans who are in charge of at least the Senate or maybe both houses of Congress who have run on, in recent years, an anti-government platform and an anti-government action platform, 
it makes it that much harder to have a Democrat in the White House who believes in activist federal government going to a Congress that has constituents who don't believe in governmental action. So it's just as easy for them to do nothing. In fact, it's Mm. better for them to do nothing because that appeals to their constituents. So I think as long as Republicans and conservatives hold to that view that government is bad and that government which governs least is the best, there won't be a lot done between the two branches of government. And therefore, the way we've been headed in our presidential power structure, really going back to Woodrow Wilson, but obviously really taking off with FDR, you will see more and more governance through executive orders rather than through what the founders hope would be that balance between the two branches of government. So as we move through this process uh, of impeachment, what do you think the most important factors are for us to be paying attention to? In other words, is, is, is it important as to what the House and the Senate do, or is it about what it says about the presidency? I focus, of course, on the latter as mm-hmm. someone who studies the presidency, <laughs> but obviously I'm paying close attention to what's happening in the House and the Senate, because that's going to determine the outcome of the process. But I do think that uh, as those of us who are members of the public who care about our constitutional structure and care about the presidency as an institution, as an office, uh, that what I am concerned about is that we're entering a new phase of the presidency as, as an office. And that particularly as it relates to the facts that are being gathered about this current impeachment inquiry would be, as we do here at the Miller Center, oral histories. We've gone all the way back to the Ford administration doing oral histories of both presidents and those who serve them, usually the top 100 senior people in administration. And over that 40 years now of gathering this material, we have seen firsthand by the descriptions of all the people who participate, careful systems, particularly in foreign policy, that are meant to work to the benefit of America, the United States as as a nation, and the American people. And so I think that's what I'm paying closest attention to about the presidency as an institution. First, how this president relates to the people via this direct communication of social media, which is very much beyond what the founders had intended. Uh, And second, the process or lack of process in making decisions, particularly in foreign policy, because we have found that those presidents who have governed most wisely uh, are those that have good people in place, who have good systems in place, And they follow them for the good of the nation and the good of the American people. Professor Barbara Perry is the Presidential Studies Director at the University of Virginia's Miller Center. Impeachment proceedings are underway in the House of Representatives, and articles of impeachment are all but certain to land in the Senate at some point. The Senate role in impeachment is stated in the Constitution. Quote, the Senate shall have the sole power to try all impeachments. Now, impeachment trials do happen in the Senate, but only two in the history of the United States involved a president. President Andrew Johnson in 1868 and President Bill Clinton in 1999. Nixon resigned before the House sent impeachment to the Senate. I worked through five different trials, actually six different trials, five judges and and President Clinton. 
That particular experienced voice belongs to... Alan Fruman. I'm Parliamentarian Emeritus of the United States Senate. Think of him as the Senate's referee. He's the rules guy. And he was there in 1999 when the impeachment trial for President Bill Clinton took place. Although not exactly as parliamentarian. I was second chair at that time. And by that, he means he was senior assistant to Robert Dove. I served during the entire trial, except for four or five days after January 15th, which is a day which will live in infamy in my life. That was the day of the Harkin point of order. The president's lawyers may very well try to weave a spell of complexity over the facts of this case. They may nitpick over the time of a call or parse a specific word or phrase of testimony. We urge you, the distinguished jurors in this case, not to be fooled. Use from Iowa. Uh, Mr. Chief Justice, I object to the use and the continued use of the word jurors when referring to the Senate sitting as triers in a trial on the impeachment of the President of the United States. So Senator Harkin, without any consultation, uh, stood up and made a point of order that the House manager, Robert Barr of Georgia, was referring to senators as jurors and that that was inappropriate. There will be no jury to stand between the judges who are to pronounce the sentence of the law and the party who is to receive or to suffer it. I was completely taken aback. Regular jurors, of course, are chosen to the maximum extent possible with no knowledge of the case. Not so when we try impeachments. Regular jurors are not supposed to know each other. Not so here. Regular jurors cannot overrule the judge. Not so here. Regular jurors do not decide when a trial is to be ended. Not, not so, so here. here. I think the framers of the Constitution meant us, the Senate, to be something other than a jury. I looked through all of the materials available to me at the desk in, in an attempt to formulate a response or advice to provide for Chief Justice Rehnquist, who was presiding as he had to uh, over the trial. During impeachment trials, senators may not engage in debate. And I was doing whatever I could to formulate an answer, at which point Senator Judd Gregg of New Hampshire stood up and made a second point of order, objecting to the fact that Senator Harkin was engaging in debate. I would ask, as a parliamentary point, whether it's appropriate to argue as to the proper reference, as I understand it. If it is a motion, it's not debatable, as I understand it. So I now had two points of order to deal with. I finally determined that I could find no basis on which to advise the presiding officer to sustain Senator Harkin's point of order. I turned to the Chief Justice and told him that, based on my quick research, I see no basis on which to sustain the point of order of the senator from Iowa. Yes. I, I, I think you may state your objection, certainly, but not argue. If the chair of your views that you may state the objection and some reason for it, but not argue it uh, ad uh, infinitum. And so I turned to speak to the chief justice, gave him my advice. My advice was not to sustain Senator Harkin's point of order. I then turned around facing front, facing the chamber, waiting for the chief justice to rule, presumably based on my advice. So. He rejected a Republican point of order and sustained a Democratic point of order. The, the chair is of the view that the senator from Iowa's objection is well taken, that the, the, court, the Senate is not simply a jury, it is a court. 
in this case, and therefore counsel should refrain from referring to senators as jurors. Presumably on my advice, because I had turned to speak to him, to give him advice, and I then turned and faced forward, and for the most part, when a senator uh, is unhappy with a ruling from the presiding officer, the senator naturally assumes that the, the basis for that ruling was not the individual in the presiding officer's chair, but was the parliamentarian on duty. And Senator uh, Lott wanted no, no waves whatsoever during uh, the Clinton impeachment trial. Suffice it to say, Senator Harkin rocked the boat and waves spread out hither and yon and uh, Senator Lott came out and immediately adjourned the trial. And therefore, Mr. Chief Justice, pursuant to the previous consent agreement, I now ask unanimous consent to the Senate stand in adjournment under the previous order. Without objection, it is so ordered. And uh, thereafter, a number of Republican senators came running down to the desk to express their dismay at what I had just done. And thereafter, word came down to my office uh, from Senator Lott that I should uh, perhaps uh, not not take any more shifts uh, during the trial. And so um, I, had, I had a bit of a, of a holiday uh, from floor shifts during the trial. One thing to know about the Clinton trial, Senators Trent Lott and Tom Daschle, the Republican and Democratic leaders at the time, were determined that the Senate be dignified in the handling of the proceedings. So a great deal of the structure for the trial took place by unanimous consent. I asked Fruman if he thought things would be as smooth and bipartisan as they were in the 1990s. Well, we've yet to see white smoke uh, signaling a, a kumbaya moment uh, involving the leadership. I, I try to be optimistic about, about the Senate and the Senate's unique role in our constitutional system and the way the Senate protects its minority. And so even though to this point uh, I'm not aware that... Uh, that there is a, um, a consensus between its leaders to work together. I am hopeful that that, will, that that will emerge. You are hopeful, but given what we've seen over these last few years, it's hard not to be a little pessimistic, right? I'm not betting a lot of money on this. Okay. Okay. I got it. So let's go to the actual rules of how this process would look in the Senate. There are actual rules and procedures for how this works? Yes. The Senate adopted a set of, of rules for the conduct of impeachment trials. Um, they did this uh, for the trial of Andrew Johnson in 1868, and that body of rules has remained relatively constant since then. There have been some tweaks uh, between 1868 and, and 1986, the last time these rules were modified. But there are 26 of them, and to a certain extent, much like the Senate's standing rules, they defy a normal person's understanding of exactly uh, what it is they mean. If you'd like, I will walk you through a couple of them. Yeah, give me a couple where it's not quite clear what this is supposed to mean, or it could be open to different interpretations. Well, well, let me start with what is clear, mm -hmm. uh, because there's so little of that. <laughs> Um, but what, what is clear uh, has been uh, recognized by Mitch McConnell, the majority leader. Uh, and as a matter of fact, there was a memo that uh, Senator McConnell um, made public a month or so ago. And it, it was a memo written by Bob Dove, 
uh, my predecessor, a Senate parliamentarian, uh, and it was written uh, to a man named Howard Green. And Howard Green was the secretary for the Republican Party, the highest ranking uh, party staff member in the Senate. And that was done just before the 1986 um, trial of, of Harry Claiborne, a federal judge who had been impeached. And Bob Dove was laying out as best he could some of the ground rules for the conduct of impeachment trials. And so this was a, a memo from the Senate parliamentarian to the secretary for the majority. And basically that said that according to Rule 1, which says when the Senate is notified that the House has appointed a, uh, impeachment managers to conduct an impeachment against anybody, that the Secretary of the Senate shall immediately, immediately, shall immediately inform the House of Representatives that the Senate is ready to receive the managers uh, for the purpose of exhibiting such articles of impeachment. And so the very first rule, impeachment rule, uh, is mandatory, shall immediately. And the second rule, when managers of impeachment shall be introduced at the bar of the Senate, et cetera, et cetera, uh, articles shall be exhibited. So here we have the very first two rules making at least the beginning of a trial mandatory. So the idea that they can, for example, there was, a, there was some thought that you can simply dismiss the charges by a majority vote in the Senate. Well, motions to dismiss are, uh, that's to a certain extent, uh, the $64,000 question. And we'll, we'll discuss that in a moment or two. Um, these first couple of rules, uh, and Rule 3 says, upon such articles being presented to the Senate, the Senate shall, at 1 o'clock afternoon on the day following such presentation or sooner, if ordered by the Senate, proceed to the consideration of such articles and shall continue in session from day to day, Sundays accepted, after the trial shall commence unless other, otherwise ordered by the Senate until final judgment shall be rendered. So rules one, two, and three appear to make, at a minimum, the beginning of the trial mandatory. And by that I mean receiving the house managers, listening to the articles, and then proceeding to consider the articles. So all of that is mandatory if the rules are to be followed. And this was the import of the memo from Bob Dove, the parliamentarian at the time, to Howard Green, the uh, secretary for the majority party. Things do get a little less clear thereafter. There is also talk of something called the two-thirds loophole. We know that in order for president to be convicted, two-thirds of the Senate need to agree, and so that's 67 senators. Well, let me let me stop you there. Yeah, and so explain what that means. Uh, yes. Well, it's nice to look at the Constitution every now and then. I try not to make a habit of it. But the vote required for conviction on impeachment is two-thirds of the members present. It's not two-thirds of the entire membership. It's two-thirds of the members present. And so you do have a sliding scale uh, necessary to convict an impeached uh, official. Alan Fruman is a former parliamentarian of the United States Senate. All right, here's one more thing for me today, and it's not about impeachment. It's about the still-growing field of Democratic presidential candidates. Hi, everyone. 
I'm Deval Patrick. Now, you can say a lot of things about the 2020 Democratic primary field, but you can't say it's not diverse. We have a little bit of everything, but one thing we didn't have was a billionaire former New York City mayor or a former Massachusetts governor and managing director at the private equity firm Bain Capital in the mix. Apparently, they believe they can do what this very big, diverse, and credentialed group of Democrats can't do. Win the Democratic nomination and beat Donald Trump. Well, I'm skeptical, extremely, extremely skeptical that they can. Look, there's nothing new about the party out of power freaking out about the weaknesses, real or perceived, of their announced candidates. However, while there may be a lot of hand-wringing among some Democrats, there's no evidence that actual Democratic voters are disappointed with their current crop of candidates. In fact, Democratic voters I've spoken to have been more overwhelmed by the size of the field and anxious for it to get narrowed down, not expanded. The only candidate Democrats are pining for is Michelle Obama. After that, pretty much crickets. Second, the race thus far has been really stable. For the last year, only five candidates have polled in the double digits, either at the state or national level. Biden, Warren, Sanders, Harris, and Buttigieg. Despite three national debates and plenty of advertising, campaigning, and organizing, no other candidates but these few have been able to break through. That makes me very skeptical that Bloomberg would be able to spend his way into the top tier. As for Patrick, who has much lower national name ID and lacks the personal fortune of Bloomberg, Breaking into public consciousness is going to be even tougher. And neither will have the benefit of a national debate stage to do that either. They won't be on the debate stage next week in Georgia. And it's also highly unlikely that either will meet the polling or donor threshold by December 12th, the deadline to be included in the upcoming December 19th debate in Los Angeles. Ultimately, what both Patrick and Bloomberg seem to be betting on is the fact that Biden will ultimately collapse and leave an electability vacuum that only they can fill. Not surprisingly, Democrats who prize electability also happen to fit the same demographic of many in the donor, activist, and establishment class. While a September CNN poll found a majority of Democrats said it was more important for them to pick a nominee who could beat Trump than one who shared their positions, whites prized electability much more than non-whites. Just over 60% of older voters put electability at the top of their list, compared to 49% of those under the age of 45. And a whopping 70% of white voters with college degrees put electability first. In other words, the kinds of people who are most active in shaping opinion, writing checks, and having the time or resources to be super engaged in democratic politics are the ones who prize electability the most. And there are also signs that they're the most pessimistic or worried that Democrats are going to blow it. Democratic voters, though, seem to be just fine with the choices they have in front of them already, and they aren't looking for a savior to lead them to victory. Despite a rocky first few months, Democratic voters continue to see Biden as the most likely to beat Trump. But voters are also not wedded to their choice of candidate. In New Hampshire, 61% of Democrats said they might change their minds before Election Day. In Iowa, a recent poll there found that less than one-third of likely caucus-goers say they're firmly set on their choice of candidate, and most wouldn't be too disappointed if they had to switch their support. In other words, this is still a very fluid race, but the ultimate Democratic nominee has already been in this race. That's all for us today. Thanks so much for listening. This is Politics with Amy Walter on The Takeaway.